Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mike Springston FFC Podcast. We're glad to have you studying the Word of God with us. We have appreciated those of you from around the world and around the United States that have downloaded our teaching and preaching. We pray that it's a blessing to you, food for thought. We pray that it strengthens you as you serve our precious Lord. Today, we're going to talk about Something that Paul began the second chapter to Timothy, from 2 Timothy, verse 1, that gives us the true picture of grace. As you know, we have been defining and describing grace, placing it in Christ Jesus. We're going to look at how Paul did that after we pray. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. Open our eyes that we can see, our ears that we can hear, and our heart that we can understand what the Word of God says to us. And then, Father, may we apply it to our lives so that we can be changed into the image of your dear Son. Jesus, we ask you to speak to us through the Holy Spirit. Reveal what it is you want taught and said. We will receive it and release it to your people. As they receive revelation, may they then release it into their circle of influence. Father, we give you praise for it in the lovely name of Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, our Lord, and our man in the Godhead. Amen and amen. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? Grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now why is that? Because grace, my friend, is who he is. It is the economy of God that is expressed to the saint and the sinner in appropriate ways. To the sinner he is the means to have one's spirit brought to life. This being made alive, of course, has a force. We call it grace. But it really is described in the four plateaus that have been completed by Jesus Christ, who is the the Jesus of the cross and the tomb, the Christ of the resurrection, and the Jesus Christ who became the high priest. These plateaus are the mechanisms of force that were applied to the spiritual world. The cross was the force that completed the legal work. The legal action had to be completed by legal sacrifice in order to buy man back from the treason that was perpetrated in the garden. This legal work accomplished the breaking of the chains of slavery and bondage that held man's spirit in the control of Satan. When completed, transgressions, iniquity, lost peace, and spiritual depravity had a remedy. This work changed the law. It did not alter the law of the spirit world. It dynamically changed the law. How did it change? The original law was that man was made in the image of God and man was created by God for his purpose, to carry out his bidding, his work in the garden. 
The law was made clear to Adam concerning what he was to do. The law was the law of dominion, multiplication, fruitfulness, the ability to replenish, and the ability to subdue. So, the law included the potential subduing of the animal that came to Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve could have followed the law and put the deceiver in his place. They had the right to subdue him. You see, they had the law on their side. Man failed in exercising his legal benefits. Adam did not operate in the law of the land. He was clearly told in Genesis chapter 2 verse 17 what would be the result of eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There is no record of God personally sharing the message with Eve, but there is record of Adam's position as the head of the union. They were of one flesh and therefore of one mind. He was responsible for what she knew. Then in Genesis 3, the serpent comes to converse with Eve. She has been bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh and should have used the law that was passed down from God to them, the law to subdue, and used that law to bring the serpent under her control. She had the power now of the law to do so, but she did not. She tried to have a discussion. I wonder whether she realized the law of the land based on her ability to sit down and attempt to mentally be on par with the serpent, to mentally outthink the serpent, whether she realized her inabilities and how those inabilities were about to change the law of the land. I wonder if in her mind it would have mattered. At any rate, from this conversation, life was turned and changed into death. The law was transformed from life, peace, dominion, and all of the power words that God had given them to words that became words of death, beggarly words, blind words, broken, bruised, and full of bondage. This law that Paul identifies as the law of sin and death in Romans 8, 2, became the law of the land. It was the law that caused mankind to be dead to God in their inner man. God had no inner source from which to lead man away from sin. Then entered Israel. God operated for Israel as their external source. He provided a tabernacle for worship that was provided for them to make sacrifices. These sacrifices would be made so that man could by the use of an offering have their sin covered. It was not for internal relationship, but it was for external relationship. God would show himself to Israel in many external acts, but Israel never would have their spirit 
adjusted. They lived completely by what they saw. If what they saw pleased them, then they, of course, would be all in for it. If it did not, then they rebelled and complained. God was, however, on display as he dealt with Israel, as he disciplined Israel, and as he delivered Israel. Now we come to Jesus. He has come to fulfill the old law and bring about a new law. His new law would be one that would be defined by the six works associated with the steps of Jesus that began with the cross. This new law would be defined by the spirit of life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul describes this in Romans 8 and 1. The law eliminates the law of sin and death. It is the new law that restores the capacity of man to live in the spirit world and be made alive because of the works of Jesus Christ. The cross began that work, but it was continued as he moved in to step two or the second plateau, which we know as the tomb. Here the flesh man was buried and the inner man was preserved. The burial of the flesh is of crucial understanding because since Jesus buried the physical flesh, we can also bury the physical. If we ascribe to the spiritual work of the cross, then we cannot less ascribe to the burial of sinful flesh. The tomb is showing us that flesh must and is to die. It must die if it is to be led by the Spirit. Our church world desires us to believe, however, that the flesh is to be allowed to run free. It is to have the latitude to do what it desires and seek the satisfaction of its passions. Then, according to them, due to grace which is the magical word that Paul brought out of the spirit world, man is to be accepted regardless of how his flesh and who his flesh serves. Grace was the factor that the church doctrine today teaches us that was to be used to overlook the deeds, actions, and service of the flesh to sin. But that disconnects the work accomplished in the tomb. It alleviates the burial and the preservation of the spirit. It counteracts a very crucial step in the process of the works that Jesus said that he did. Remember, this is what Jesus did for the redemption and adoption of mankind. Of course, he redeemed Israel. He adopted mankind and redeemed mankind. It was meant to be the solution. This redemption and adoption was meant to be the solution for the flesh. We were to follow him to the tomb just as we followed him to the cross. Grace, however, being misinterpreted, has allowed us to be taught that once we come into grace, we can always remain in grace regardless of whom our flesh serves.
Notice the scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Do you see it? Be strong in the grace or the favor that is in Christ Jesus. He is grace. What he has done has been done for the distribution of grace, both to the sinner and the saint. He is in himself grace. Stop making grace to be an unholy thing. Stop trotting on the work of Jesus Christ. The tomb's work is every bit as important as the cross. Why? Because it shows us that grace defeated the flesh. If grace has defeated the flesh, you must as well. You would say, but I'm just a human being and I'm subject to human things. You were. You were just a human being. But in Christ, you left the world of fleshly attachment and went into the world where Jesus Christ has produced the remedy to sin in the flesh. This is a spiritual connection that will eliminate the old man. When does it do that? Well, when you understand that grace has walked the walk and completed the steps for you to follow. In following, you are both crucified and dead. Sin is crucified and the flesh is dead. This is what the favor of God has done for you. This is what grace has provided for you. This is what grace has given you to believe upon. If we operate, operate from any other kind of made-up discipline, we're laying ourselves open as the, book, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, 28 and 29. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God that counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. My friend, this is a serious matter of which man will have to reckon with come judgment time. And he will do so because we did not teach the work of Christ correctly. Therefore, we misrepresented grace to the people. Hence, lives became shipwrecked as the devil continued to control the flesh activities of those of whom we inaccurately taught grace. My friend, this is a serious business. Of that there is no doubt. Grace and the inaccurate teaching of grace has placed us and placed many men in peril. Of that there is no doubt. Now, look at this. In the most prominent denomination, that teaches the doctrine of once in grace, always in grace. I want you to see what we see there. 
And this is not necessarily a, a denominational issue. But it is coming specifically in the denomination of which is the proponent and the predominant teacher of once in grace, always in grace. We see the flesh on display. The ministers of the very doctrine are committing crimes against the flesh. They groom children for their pleasure. They take advantage of women for their pleasure. The list of unconscionable deeds seems to be endless. So what do we do with these men who have been leaders and very well respected in our church community? Do we maintain the doctrinal position that says grace is all we need? Once we're saved, we're always saved. Or do we say that we have followed men who were never saved to begin with? Because that's the common comeback with this grace, once in grace, always in grace. If they're living in sin, they were never saved to begin with. But yet, they have built great churches they have been leaders of which have been well respected and well trusted, built large congregations. What do we do now? Do we maintain that doctrinal position that says grace is all you need? Well, of course, you're going to sin. The sin is, is irrelevant because you are in grace, so just move on. Is that the mechanics of which we're to function? Let's go talk to him and see if he sees it our way. Oh well, and this is what the church is saying. Let's go talk to this leader, this pastor, and see if he sees it our way. Our doctrine says that he's still in the good standing with God, so how can we discipline him? Now, do you see the foolishness of this doctrine? Do you see the foolishness of once in grace, always in grace? Because if we ascribe to that, then those that are in leadership capacities by our doctrine have to remain in those leadership capacities because unless you are greater than God, you have no alternative. Now, what is the root of this problem? Well, they didn't get two elements, two crucial elements of the walk of Jesus Christ correct. First, they didn't understand grace and the favor of God. That favor of God is Jesus Christ. Second, they didn't understand that the flesh is to die and be buried. Why? Because they stayed at the cross. They didn't go to the tomb. Your flesh is to be buried, my friend. It is to be controlled. In the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of temperance is to be the fruit that ensures that the flesh is brought under the control of the favor of God by grace, who is grace, Jesus Christ. If we taught the doctrine correctly, then man could exercise the tomb appropriately. 
When done, they would realize that yes, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but God gave us a favor. That favor was the remedy for sin. But it was also the remedy, wait on it, for the flesh. You do not have to or need any longer because of the cross of the tomb to live short of the glory of God ever, ever, ever again. You can control your need for personal satisfaction, self-gratification, and immediate pleasure. How will you do it? By the favor of God. It was completed for you by the legal severing of sin and your belief upon it, the burying of flesh in the tomb. It's done. You just have to take your belief system through the steps and follow Jesus Christ. Now in John 14, 12, note this now. He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. Do you see that? He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. Well, what works did he do that influences? Now get me here because you're going to say, well, what about the feeding the 5,000? What about the raising from the dead? Aren't those works of him? They are, my friend. But those works were to show Israel the Father. The works that he did that influenced the character, personality, and the attitudes of man were done from the cross to the tomb to the resurrection and into the tabernacle where he sprinkled blood on the vessels of ministry, where he sanctified you and called you his brethren. Do you see it? Well, it began with the cross and proceeded to the tomb. Every man, every man can do these works. Watch this. Paul said so in Galatians chapter 2 and verse beginning with verse 20. And then on to 21, he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Watch it now. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. I do not frustrate the grace of God. Well, who was the grace of God? It was Jesus Christ. John told us he was grace and truth. Now, wait a minute here. Grace is the favor of God, and that is Jesus Christ. Prove it to me, Pastor. All right now, buckle your seatbelt, because we have to look back at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29 to find that. And hath done, now watch the words in Hebrews 10, 29, the last part, and hath done despite unto the spirit of grace. Oh my Grace is operating from a spirit? Yes, my friend. He's operating from the same spirit that the Holy Spirit is operating from. The Holy Spirit is referred to as the spirit of truth. The spirit of grace is operating from Jesus Christ. My friend, here's what I want to tell you about this great and gracious word of God. 
It's like ragu. It's all in there. We just need to dig a little. We just need to mine the treasure that's laying under the surface. We need to stop taking the word of theologians who most of the time are creating doctrines from their own spiritual weaknesses. And we need to look into the word of God and take it and read it and let the Holy Ghost reveal it to us. The writer said we have no need to be taught of man, but the Spirit of God will reveal to us what it is we need to know. My friend, it's all in there. Our answers to our individual life are all in the first four plateaus, the first four walks that Jesus did. Now we come to the resurrection. What do we learn here that Jesus did that is a work that we also can do, must do, and will do? Well, in here, we are made alive in the Spirit just as He was. In our new life, we are free from death and hell. This new life offers the healing of the body from the attacks of the enemy that would attempt to weaken our body. Our body, of course, is in fact deported once into death. In the heavenly economy of God, it's not, however, appointed under sickness and disease that was taken care of by what Jesus accomplished in the region of the damned. Separation that results from God, from the dead inner man, is no longer the bondage that correlates my life to be cast into hell. I have no more attachment to the man of sin. I am no longer a slave to death, sickness, or disease. I'm no longer a candidate for the rejection by judgment that results in my being cast into hell. So what am I? I am risen with the victoriously anointed Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 9 through 12 says, And be found in him. In him. In him how? In the spirit of truth. In the spirit of grace. Glory to God. Not having mine own righteousness but the spirit of grace in me, the spirit of truth in me, which is the righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through, now watch it now, the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of, of God by faith. Paul here is speaking of what is found in the resurrection. Number one, he said, I do not stand in my own righteousness, for that was under the old law. I now stand in the righteousness of the spirit of grace and the spirit of truth. Number two, I stand by the faith of Christ. His faith in God has made it so that I can put my faith in him. Why? Because he is the favor of God, the spirit of grace. This faith is the standard of God. When I put my faith in the faith of Christ, who is the spirit of grace, I have attached myself to his righteousness. This faith is, watch it now, of God. The faith of God that we know as grace is the man of God who expressed righteousness to us while expressing his faith in God. 
Verse 10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Now I'm going to stop this right here and come back and begin session two on this topic from Paul's writing in uh, Philippians uh, chapter 3 and verse 10. Don't you forget it, I'll be back to talk about how Paul taught the true picture of grace. Father, I thank you for your word. May your word bless and enlighten your people. May we come to know the truth about the spirit of grace, Jesus Christ. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ, our high priest, our Lord, and our man in the Godhead. Amen and amen. Contact me at springston56 at gmail.com, mikespringstonministries.com, ffcma.org, or through Family Fellowship Chapel's direct messaging. May God richly bless you until we speak again.